Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17 contains the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. The 26 verses that make up John 17 are the very words that Jesus brought before his Father shortly before he would go to the cross for the redemption of his people. There are three sections in this prayer we've studied so far. The first section is Jesus praying for himself, for the glory of God, uh, to be revealed through himself by bringing glory to Jesus. Secondly, the section we took a few uh, focuses on, different components of Jesus' prayer for those who were living then, his disciples who were living with him and walking with him, uh, the eleven who would become apostles, but also those who were following and trusted in him as well. And then finally, today, we come to verses 20 through 26, where Jesus prays for us, for you. Hear God's word, John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let us pray. Father, what powerful words. Lord God, perhaps these are the most profound words in the Scriptures. I pray, Father, that we would not be the same people. Having studied this today, having read it today, and contemplated today again, these powerful words of the prayer our Lord Jesus prayed for us. I pray this in His name. Amen. Each monthly session meeting, we gather together with the deacons at 7 o'clock. They start at 6 o'clock, sometimes earlier. At 7 o'clock, the elders and the deacons together come together for our monthly meeting. We pray, read a portion of scripture, then we break up into small groups. Uh, For about 45 minutes, we go into small groups of four or five guys, 
and pray for each other specifically. It's a big group and we come together and we can't have that time if we don't do it this way. So we'll go off, some will go into Nathan's office, some into my office, some into John's, or some will stay in the room we're meeting. And four or five of us will share requests, personal requests, about our lives, what's happening in our lives, maybe some answer prayer from a a prior session. We share those with each other. Then we go around the room and pray for each other. And usually, like good Presbyterians, we pray for the guy to the right. You know, rather than just praise the Lord feel, as, far as, as far as, as you feel led. You know, we don't want to do that. So we pray for the guy on the right in orderly fashion. And I'm always amazed uh, to hear the brothers pray for each other. And specifically, even after all these years of doing this with these brothers and having other people I've heard pray for me, uh, I'm still self-conscious a little bit when one of the elders starts praying for the request I just gave them. The really personal and that elder who knows me or that deacon who knows me will, will add something else that they know, something good that I need to have prayed for, something that they encourage, they're asking God to encourage me about. Sometimes they'll praise God for something about me. That feels weird because I know me. But that brother really does love me and really does mean that and lifts that before the Father. And it's such a special time. In, in an otherwise formal meeting, We have this time to have this interpersonal relationship with each other, to express it, and to hear someone else pray for you specifically before the throne. There there is a powerful impact that has on your own walk with the Lord and your relationship with that person. It is no different, brothers and sisters, when the Lord Jesus prays these verses, these last verses of this prayer, in that he is praying for you with you in mind. Now, I know we can't fathom that because our minds aren't, our minds are fallen. We, we're restricted in how much we can know. But Jesus is not in this sense. And as he prays this prayer, he prays with a knowledge of those who would come because of the word of the apostles. So there's a very real sense here where he is praying specifically for you, brother, for you, sister, here in this text. Till now we have learned great principles through the prayer that are true of his love for the church, his people. Now we come to some specific petitions on the part of Jesus. And beyond petitions, we actually have him make a statement. Uh, Basically, he tells God the Father, this is what will happen. And only Jesus can do that based on his merit. Look at verse 20. As he shifts from focusing on the prayer of immediate living disciples to us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Their word being the word of the apostles. The word that is spread forth from the witness of the apostles, which is ultimately contained in the scriptures. So all those who would come to what? Belief. Who would come to faith. In who? Christ. Through the witness of the apostles. So he is not praying for the world in general. He is praying specifically for those who would trust in Christ by faith in the word that has been given by the apostles, the scriptures. Very specific, very careful. These closing words are specifically concerned with me, with you. It mirrors something that was said in the book of Acts as the apostles were planting churches, preaching the gospel. God was sending his Holy Spirit in a miraculous way and the church was being built up. It says in Acts chapter 10, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That is Jesus. 
Acts 10.43 says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, that's Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. As we look at the final verses of John 17, consider this summary that A.W. Pink gives these verses. Pink says, and in the previous sections, the Lord Jesus had prayed for his people according to their needs while they were here in the world. But now he looks forward to the time when they shall no more be in the world, when instead they shall be where he now is. Therefore, does he pray that they may be unified, glorified, and satisfied? Three petitions, three components of his prayer. That we would be unified, glorified, and satisfied. Let's look first. Jesus prays that we would be unified. Verse 21 says, And they, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Do you see how important unity among the believers is to the heart of God? It's just in these verses, there are four references to the importance of our unity, being one, unified. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says in the first chapter, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Over and over, we read in the Old Testament, where the psalmist says how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity, through to the New Testament, where Paul repeatedly, over and over again, speaks of the importance of us being unified. Now, to be unified does not mean that you and I will agree on every point. Essential points we have to have agreement. On Christ we have to agree. But unity is actually when we are one in the presence of the differences we have. The practice of unity is working at unity. I mean, it's easy to find a bunch of people think like you and just shake your head with each other all the time. It's another thing to be with a diverse group and still be one. That evidences a unity that is otherworldly. It's supernatural. That's the essence of what Jesus prays for. He prays for it because it will not happen naturally in the life of any person this side of the fall. It only happens that we're united or that we get along because God gives us unity. He gives us a spirit of grace that allows for us to love one another. It couldn't be more crucial. Look at how he ends this prayer. Of all the things he could have prayed for regarding you and I, he prays that we would be one, just as he is one with the Father. This is a unity that will be witnessed by others. It's a unity of love. It's a unity of purpose. It's a unity of life. Why is it so important? Well, look what it says. It manifests the unity between the Father and the Son. First of all, verse 21 says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. There's a, a manifestation, a teaching of the unity that is between the Father and the Son based on how it's manifested in the lives of people who are called by Him, redeemed by Him, given new life by Him. Verse 22 says it again. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So in some way that I can't completely express to you, because I, I can't even fathom it, there's a similarity, there's an analogy between the way you and I are one and the way the Father and the Son are one. That's how close it is. That's how connected it is. That's how in unison it is. This speaks to a relational component to the image of God itself. That we're created for relationship with God and with each other. You know, none of us were created to be loners, islands under themselves. We're created to be in communion with each other. And I want us to recognize that the only thing that changed this was the fall itself. And it's a big thing. But ever since the fall, ever since man rebelled against God, there was a disunity between God and man, and then as a result, a disunity between man and man. Just, it's inevitable. As we break fellowship with God to follow our own word, we can't have a relationship with him anymore. And therefore, our relationship is messed up between each other. Only God working can cause us to be in relationship with himself again, because we're dead, And then that result has to mean that there's communion again with other people. It's not just that we get all right with God. The manifestation of that is we get all right with each other. So when Christ comes and stands as our mediator and undoes the fall, so to speak, and we are in him, now we have right relationship with God because it's about relationship with him, and now we can have relationship with each other. But we still have to work at it this side of glory. The picture we have here is leading us to glory. There's a sense in which this prayer is reaching forward into eternity. And only in eternity will we fully gather what it means. But there can be no doubt the passion of the Lord Jesus is four times in verses 21 through 23. He speaks of us becoming one together. Verse 21. Notice why this unity is so important. In addition to manifesting what's true about the Father and the Son... It says in the the second part of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This isn't one verse in isolation. This occurs throughout the New Testament, this picture of people seeing the witness of the church by its unity. Verse 23 says in the second portion, almost identically, but just a bit different, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Listen, in living this portion of Christ's prayer out, we have to be honest. We have struggled with this as Christians. As as struggle as it is for a local church to be unified, think of the wider church in its divisions over the years. Really uncountable. And what a shame and what really a terrible tragedy that is for the witness of the church to be so divided. So there's a sense in which we have to look for this to be fully fulfilled when we are with God as one. But there is still another sense that Christ says over and over again that we can enact oneness now to some degree. And we have to start locally. I really believe in this sense in which each local church does its best to live this out and it will have a ripple effect to other churches and to our community. And why does he continually say, the Lord Jesus, that it's by the way we relate with one another that the world knows that the message of Christianity is true. But he says it over and over again. People know us by our love. For one another. It's so important that we recognize the witness we are based on living out this unity principle. Walking together in unity is probably the greatest call after the realization of Christ for our salvation 
It's probably the greatest call we can have, is to walk together in unity. It is so powerful to a watching world. And I think we pass over it too quickly. We say, oh, we're talking about unity again. I get along with everybody. Please, pause for a moment and think of how important this is. It's so radically different than the way the world works. We're so divided in the world. There's so many things that cause us to hate one another, to enact uh, terrible things against each other. It's been going on since the fall. I mean, it didn't take long after the fall that you have the first murder. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. So if a church of people who are professed sinners can somehow find a way to get along, certainly someone will see that that's supernatural because it can't happen unless something otherworldly causes it to happen. This is why it's so powerful to a watching world. It's so foreign to get along. Maybe some of you were unbelievers for a time in your life, in your recent memory, and you remember what hatred does in a family, what vendettas are like, revenge or holding grudges. That's the way of people apart from Christ. That's the way we function because we're ultimately self-interested. We're ultimately trying to promote ourselves. We're nice to people so long as it positions us in a better place. It's only in Christ that we can begin to have actual genuine relationship with each other because our relationship with God is clear. But even in the church, it's tough. Even among believers, it's tough. So when the world sees a genuine group of people loving with purpose and with their lives, Around Christ, this has a powerful impact. It says something true about the message. They won't listen to the message necessarily until they see something different in the lives of the people. And it's not complex. It's not ambiguous. We don't have to drop a big plan. It's being unified. It's that simple in so many ways. People sense this. They see it. It's so different. The Apostle Paul telling the Ephesian church something very similar as we would expect <clears throat> He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Paul says, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. This is a consistent encouragement throughout scripture. The people of God be unified. Jesus doesn't just pray for our unity. He prays for something else. For us to be glorified. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now he's talking about us. And I don't feel so glorious most days. But Jesus says that the glory that you have given me, saying to the Father, you've given me glory, and I've given it to them. That's us. That's you. That they may be one, even as we are one. Now there's much discussion about what is meant here when Christ says that he's given glory to his people. Glory simply means, I believe in this context, a manifestation of God. Which is indeed glorious. While on earth, as God, Jesus manifested God personally, being God himself. But he also did by what he spoke, words from the Father. And by what he did, miraculous deeds. It wasn't just that the transfiguration was glorious. The parables were glorious. He was glorious. He dwelt among us. He gave that glory that he lived out on earth to us by placing us in union with himself. So when the Father looks at the Son in his glory, he looks at you with the same glory. I know that blows you away if you think about it. But it's true. 
he no longer looks at you as inglorious, but he looks at you the same way he looks at his son. Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, this is key, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What Christ has earned by his merit is ours. According to scripture, according to what Jesus prays. Jesus does not hesitate to ask God to give us his glory. This is far different than me. I don't pray to give you any of my glory. I want my glory. In fact, I'd like a little more. I'm not going to give away some of it to you. Yet God the Son said, give them my glory. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It doesn't mean go out look for suffering. It means that if you're in him, there will be suffering that comes. Christ gives us his glory. Fellow heirs with Jesus. Back to verse 22 of chapter 17 in John. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. This is this doctrine of the union we have with Christ. As God views us, he no longer sees us alone, but he sees us in Christ. Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Now in verse 24, there's a shift to see my glory that you have given me. There's a shift to the eternality of the glory of Christ and the glory that he will have as he is seated at the right hand. At this moment, he's still with them, but he's saying it as though it's already now happened. The same way Paul says that those he justified, he sanctified. Those he sanctified, he glorified. He speaks in present terms about a reality that will happen. Well, now it's true. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in full glory. And we get to see him in that place. He wants us to see him so we recognize what the glory of Christ means and how it's applied to our own lives even now. We have access to that glory. Again, Paul writing on this subject as he does often to the Corinthian church in chapter 4 says... For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We can still show the surpassing power. The glory is still there, but it's in earthen vessels and it shines in us and through us and from us. The glory of Christ, being in union with Christ, every believer here, from the smallest to the tallest, every one of us. To be glorified ultimately means to be made perfect, to be mature, to be complete. To be glorified is to be totally fulfilled in our redemption, to have finally arrived. And it will happen sooner than we can imagine. The image that Paul gives to the Ephesian church captures this again we think of it as the marriage verses in chapter 5 but remember that in ephesians he's giving us really primarily a picture of christ in his church 
where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, may be holy and without blemish, glorified. Praise for this. Praise for us. Jesus doesn't just pray for our unity. He doesn't just pray for our glory. Ultimately, he prays for our satisfaction, eternal satisfaction. Look at verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. See, God the Father loves us as he loves the Son. God loves us because he loves the Son. To the degree that God loves his Son, so also he loves you. This kind of love grants security. Indeed, it grants satisfaction. This is what prompts Paul to say that I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point is, everything that you're scared of, everything that worries me, everything that in my dark moments frighten me, all of those things are answered in the surety that God the Father loves God the Son and you are in union with the Son. All our fears are answered in this. We have no fears answered without Christ. But in Christ, it's all there and we're satisfied. We're secure. There's no other Savior who does this. Indeed, there is no other Savior. Only in Christ are our fears truly relieved do we have satisfaction. Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, where he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in Christ. In Christ, through Christ, by Christ, with Christ, that is what Jesus prays for. We are with him. He loves us as sons and daughters, and he loves us as saints, just as he loves his son. He loves us tenderly as dear children as he does his son. He loves us unchangeably as he does his son. It's not on one day and off the next. He loves us in a way that grants intimacy with him, direct access to him as he loves his son, security in him. as His son is secure in his father's love for him. He loves us in a way that bestows gifts upon us. He pours things out on us as he did his son and does his son. He equips us for all things we need as he did his son and does his son. And next comes in verse 24, one of the most glorious verses in all the scriptures. Look at verse 24. It's hard to rank verses, just like it's hard to rank chapters and prayers. But this has to be at the top of anybody's list when you consider the, the profundity of this, the deepness of it, when he says in verse 24, Father, and he doesn't ask here, please notice, this isn't a petition. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. In other words, if you take me, you've got to take them. He comes to the Father and says, I want them to come with me. They're with me. It's what the Son says. This is not a petition. This is now a statement of what will be. I desire, Jesus desired that you, whom the Father has given him, may be with him where he is to see his glory, that you may 
And he says in this verse, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He speaks based on the right that he earned by his life. His death that would soon come in this passage that is now done, his resurrection. What does he say on the basis of his merit? They, you, are with me. That's what the Son says. Heaven is bequeathed to us by Christ. We inherit heaven because of Christ. The psalmist said, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The picture, the final prayer of Jesus in these verses, the last section is about eternity. It's a life that leads to and through and into eternity. And you know, when I think about my own life and all the strivings, and maybe you can think the same, the truth of the matter is no one of real worldly import is interested in me. They really are not. There are no local dignitaries who care about me or interested in me. No politicians really care about me. No rich folk, no sports stars care about me. They're not interested. I assure you the governor doesn't care about me. The president doesn't even know or care about me. Nobody is interested in me except for Christ. Christ is interested in me. And he's interested in you to secure your eternity in him. Only he can do it. I don't care if the other ones are interested in me. They can't secure my eternity. He can and has. And this is what he prays. Pink, who does a wonderful commentary of reference before throughout this series, says this, that they shall stand before the Lord and see, that's us, his glory, are much, much more happy How this reveals to us the heart of the Savior. He will not be satisfied till he has all his blood-bought ones in his presence. Forever with the Lord. For this he is coming personally to take us to be with himself. I will come again, Christ said, and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The last two verses in this chapter, as the prayer in general speaks for itself. It says in verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. At the beginning of this series, I quoted J.C. Ryle, who said, The chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone, and there's nothing like it. Now I conclude the series by changing Bishop Ryle's words just a bit. The chapter that we have now concluded is indeed the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone, and there is nothing like it. Let us pray. Father, how can we conceive of what we have just read? I pray that you would give us the ability to begin to understand how wide and how deep and how high the love of Jesus Christ for us. Father, this cannot help but change us. And for the hard heart here today, I pray that you would break it up to see this gospel of pure grace. 
that you would bring to yourself the stiff-necked sinner who refuses to see their need for Christ. Lord, the same way you draw, drew so many of us, I pray that you would draw that person today who stands here thinking they're all right before you. Lord, give us a new love for Christ, that it is only in him that we have access to you. And Lord, it's joyous to have that access, to look forward to an eternity that is secure, that Jesus has not lost one and will not lose one of those given to him. Father, empower us to have fear no more. In Jesus' name, amen.